Anyway, I opened up that can of worms, but didn't really know what I was going to say about that. Because <laughs> it's so complicated. It is. But, um... Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we are talking to another wonderful friend of mine, Alita Ibrahim. Alita recently graduated from UBC in May and majored in sociology. She was born in Malaysia and has lived around the world. And today, she shares her stories of living in Vienna, Vancouver, and Kuala Lumpur. We also talk about our family's politics and her experiences living in Malaysia, and how the intersections of race, class, religion, and sexuality come into play. My name is Cecilia Federizon, and you're listening to Visible Minorities. Yeah, so today I have one of my good friends, Alita. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alita, maybe give us an introduction about yourself. Okay, um, I am Malaysian and I've been living in Vancouver for four years now. I came to Vancouver to study, but previously I lived in Vienna and then I also lived in Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, I'm also a sociology graduate. Like <laughs> yeah, we just so, graduated yeah. this year. <laughs> so actually, you're the first one that I interviewed who's in our class. Oh, really? gra- Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, because everyone else, they're still in their degrees. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah graduate, like postgraduate, like. Uh, <laughs> uh. All that fun. <laughs> um, oh, and I was thinking about this because when... This morning, I was thinking, like, oh, we're going to do this podcast. I was thinking, like, what would I say about myself that I normally wouldn't say or that I should say but wouldn't think to say? And I realize, especially now, with all the attacks on Muslim lives and Islamophobia happening in the world, I feel like it's important for me to say that I am a Muslim. Mm. I never felt like I had ownership to that identity because you'd consider me, like, a bad Muslim, you know, like, I don't pray five times a day, I don't wear the hijab, and, okay. um, I just felt, like, when we think of a Muslim, we still think of a very homogenized kind of person, right, so that's all the more reason why I should say that I'm a Muslim, to show that there is diversity within that religion as well, so. right, and it's not just in this one geographic area, no, no, not at yeah. all, yeah, you know, the stereotype that we all have in the news, mm-hmm, Yes, yeah. and yeah, just queering the term Muslim, and so, I mean, you can't see me, but like, I have colored hair, and I have a tattoo, and yeah, yeah. a new tattoo! A new tattoo, <laughs> I know! So my little act of rebellion. I hope no Malaysians are listening to this, because technically I wouldn't be allowed to have one. Oh, really? Yeah. Is there an actual law in Malaysia? Yeah, so, um, tattoo artists, I mean, from my understanding, because our government-issued IDs, actually have our religion on it oh so when you go to show your id to say that you're like 18 and above they're technically or i don't think they're legally um they're legally like not allowed to tattoo on you but just to save them and their asses they just would rather not tattoo any muslims like if you knew the tattoo artist really well and if they knew, like, you were cool, then maybe they'd consider it, but for, right. like, the most part, they wouldn't. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Mm-hmm. Would you ever consider going back and living in Kuala Lumpur? Um, 
Well, as you know, we just graduated. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of finding jobs. My backup plan is if I don't find anything by August, I would be going home. Oh. Yeah. But only temporarily until I go and do my master's next year. Okay. But yeah, I've, I've been... Maybe two, three years ago, I thought, oh, not going home. Not going home until I feel like things have changed. Uh, but I... My mom is a huge... Patriot, and I don't mean that in like a nat like she's not nationalist, like, yeah. but she grew up at a time where the Malaysian government invested a lot in her generation in the sense of like they had scholarships for her to go study abroad, housing subsidies, like right. they were taken care of really well. And as a result, I find that her generation they have a big sense of giving back to their country, okay, which my generation doesn't have. But having grown up with that sort of attitude, you know, if people like me keep leaving Malaysia, then it'll never change. Right. So I feel like if I want to feel accepted or to feel like this is a space that I can be in, then I have to create that space for myself. Right. Because, I mean, like any other third world country, well, I don't know if you want to say Malaysia's third world or like developing global <laughs> south, you know. In quotation you want. marks. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm doing the bunny ears. Um, but it's like we have a huge brain drain issue, you know. Right, um, yeah. Most graduates, or sorry, most high school graduates will leave the country if they can afford to because we don't have great universities mm -hmm. and they want to stay abroad because they see that oh wow there's so many more opportunities or like I'm valued here more I have more freedom of expression or whatever it is yeah um, if you ask a bunch of Malaysians they have different reasons why they want to leave but the bottom line is a lot of them from what I know want to leave right which is a shame because they're talented they're different they have a lot that they could do for our country um so I think like at the very least I should maybe come home and do my part but yeah we'll see <laughs> so I know that you you spent like half your life in Malaysia and half your life in Vienna and then now you're living here yes how do you I guess for me if if I were in your shoes I wouldn't know what to think of myself oh yeah or I, yeah. I guess like because I'm already a first generation Filipino immigrant, and mm -hmm. I still have, like, a kind of disconnect with Filipino culture. Mm -hmm. So how, I guess, do you stay in touch with your Malaysian culture? Um, that's an excellent question, and it's one that I constantly grapple with. Um, I guess, so I'm... A person of color, I look very different, and the places Different that, from whiteness. Different from whiteness, yeah. yes, let's just say that directly. Um, and for me, even though it's been a while since I've spent an extended period of time in Malaysia, I still call myself Malaysian because, um, I guess, in a way, I feel like to say that I'm Austrian doesn't quite fit 
people's image of what an Austrian looks like. Right. Do you have an Austrian passport? No, no, no. Not, and, oh, okay. and, that's, and I was going to get to that. Oh, okay. And, like, all my legal documents, my citizenship and my nationality right. is Malaysian. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing. So even though I may feel closer to, like, as in I have more memories or, like, my formative years were spent in Vienna. Like, that's where I fell in love. That's where I had my first heartbreak. That was, like, all my big firsts. Right. Um, as a young adult sort of happened there. I still don't feel like I have enough um, of a right to say that I'm Austrian. Like, because mm. I don't have PR there. I don't have, sorry, permanent residence. Or yeah. I don't... Again, I don't look white. Yeah. And, yeah, so it always just, like, if I say I'm Malaysian, people don't question it, you know? But if, yeah. I, if I were to say I was Austrian, which, again, I don't even feel like I'm Austrian. If anything, I'd be, like, Viennese, because Vienna and Austria are very different. Mm, um, yeah. Vienna's a little more cosmopolitan. It's kind of like London and the rest of the UK. London has a, okay. a ton of... Diversity? Diversity, yes. Um, and so does Vienna, but outside of Vienna, not so much. Okay. Um, I wouldn't even say I was Austrian because I don't even feel Austrian, but like Vienna, that city, that's... If anyone were, were to ask me what my home was, that would be my home. Okay. Um, although I've changed that a little bit, like I'll be like, oh, people are my... You know, like my brother's in Chicago, my mom's... Where, wherever my mom is, that's my home. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's really complicated, but I've learned to just sort of say Malaysian because it's just easier. Yeah, no questions asked. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they just believe you. Yeah, and like, I don't feel like I'd have to justify or qualify right. um, where I'm from. Yeah. Because sometimes it just, then I have to explain and it's just like, you know. Yeah. I don't want to, and then... As a woman, sometimes I feel like I'm not meant to take up that much space. Right. You know, like, and even if it's just talking space, right? Or, like, talk, like time. Yeah. I'm, I'm supposed to be like, okay, like, quick answers, like, okay, that, yeah, that's me, you know? Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. I never really thought of that, actually. Oh. Like, then again, I, I think about, like, taking up space in classrooms or, you know, there are certain people who do take up more of the conversations in yes, class. Yes, Like, there's a certain identity or a person. Mm -hmm. But I never really thought about that in, in our everyday conversations where it's, like, you have to keep it short and simple so that people don't get confused mm -hmm. or <laughs> people don't think you think too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. I... I actually haven't thought of that. Now I feel like I want to reflect <laughs> like every every moment. Every time you've ever had to speak to like an uncle or something, you know, because I, I find that that happens the most with um, family interactions or like extended family, mm. um, where I feel, I mean, not just the gender aspect, but also the age aspect. I'm usually younger so than true. everyone else. So I feel like, yeah. oh, why, why I shouldn't be talking that much because I don't know anything. Yeah, you know? I mean that's that's sort of like in terms of the hierarchy of knowledge and age, they sort of correlate. Like, yeah, uh, the older you are, the seemingly you know more. Although you know mm -hmm. that's debatable, but in those instances, especially because I come from an Asian background, mm -hmm. it's usually um, 
the people who know more and the people who take up most of the conversation are older men. Right. Do you find in your family that you're the only person who has a certain kind of politics or do most of your family like agree with you? Um, so I, I would say that my nuclear family, um, except for my dad, they're quite liberal. Right. Um, but I really mean like liberal in the sense that, um, because I wouldn't call myself liberal. I would. I, I. 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 think, especially as I get older, I notice that my politics tend to be a little bit more radical. Right. Than than your average liberal. Um. <laughs> than your average liberal. I like that. <laughs> Whatever that means. But like, I know my mom has a problem with um, women wearing really. Um, in her words, like, scantily clad. Okay. Like, um, Beyonce's first visual album, she was, like, really empowered, like, in terms of her sexuality, and, like, that was on display, and I kept telling her, oh, it's because she just had a child, and she wants to, like, reclaim that sexuality, and for once, it's, like, her, it's not people gazing upon her, but she has more, I mean... To what extent does she have the power to sort of control right. her sexuality? That's another, that's another um, discussion. But she just felt like her her argument was, oh, but she has such a she 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 she's such a role model, and she could she could um, influence so many people, and yet she wants to be out here in her bra. Why? Like, <laughs> why would I listen to her if she's out there in her bra? Yeah, you know. And I was like, but maybe that's the point. Like, why do we? Why do we not want to listen to someone if they're in their bra? Like, why right. have we overly sexualized women, especially black women and, you know, yeah. all that? And she, she'll listen, but I don't think she necessarily agrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and my siblings, on the other hand, they're very... Um, so they still buy into... Uh, like, the myth of meritocracy. They think if you just work hard enough, right. you'll do fine. I had a very difficult conversation with my brother about poverty and homelessness. Mm. Um, especially after doing field school, I was in the downtown east side. And, you know, you, you learn firsthand that sometimes it just doesn't matter how hard you work or, or um, how talented you are. The, there are all these systemic barriers that work against you. And my brother just like, ah, they want to be in welfare because they don't want to work. You know, like that's that was his yeah. uh, um, dismissal of it all. And I was just really disappointed. But on the, but like, I'm not, I'm lucky in the sense that they could be worse. You know, like right. they could be far more conservative. Like mm-hmm. they're not religious. They're not, um... They believe in basic human rights and, like, understand what those civil civil liberties mean. Like, they're all pro-choice and, like, pro-reproductive health, all that kind of stuff. But it's just the little, like, if we get into more details and, like, the little nuances, especially when you add, like, class and race, that's when we start to diverge. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by, so you touched a little bit on diverging about the racial or sorry the class aspect mm-hmm. what about the race aspect um 
So my mom, for the most part, grew up in Malaysia. And she, she's, okay, so Malaysia, I think this is important to know. We have three main ethnic groups. We have Malays. Oh, I was going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, you, you should start again. I, I interrupted. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. What do you know about it? Um, well, I was going to ask you that, you know, Malaysia, and I guess Singapore a bit, but mm-hmm. not as much, mm-hmm. um, has three distinct races or ethnicities. Yeah. So that's the Malay, Chinese, and Indian. Mm-hmm. And that's basically your multiculturalism yes, kind of yes. aspect. I was going to ask you how would you, how you would compare Malaysian multiculturalism and Canadian multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. But we can talk about that okay, afterwards. Yeah, no. I, I don't want to just <laughs> interrupt your train no, of thought. That's, that's an excellent question because I think multiculturalism, even within Malaysia, is still a new concept. Like we have all okay. these, our current government is all about uh, one Malaysia and one this and one that. So we're still at a point where we don't want to think in races and we don't want to racialize things because, I mean, we've had race riots in the past and there has been quite a lot of hostility between all three races. Let's get a brief overview of the Malaysian race riots Alita is talking about here. There's always been tensions between the Malay and the Chinese in Malaysia because of the huge division of wealth. The Chinese mostly lived in the cities and had a lot of control of the country's economy, in comparison to the larger Malay population, who were less rich and mostly lived in rural areas. Prior to 1969, there was also huge disparities in levels of education and types of professions along racial lines. In the 1969 Malaysian general election, the governing coalition called the Alliance Party won the most seats, but not the popular vote. The coalition was made of three parties to represent the three major ethnic groups in Malaysia. They faced a strong challenge from the opposition parties, the Democratic Action Party and the party Khan, who were very strong and mainly Chinese. Because of the unease of the election, Racial tension spiked a few days later, and the riots began, which put Malaysia in a state of emergency. And this is also known as the 13 May Incident. These riots led to the new economic policy that granted a change in government policy by way of affirmative action in favor of Malays. Alita also wanted to mention that she personally benefited from the new economic policy because it allowed her mom to get out of her lower socioeconomic status by being granted a scholarship to go to boarding school and university. Because of this, Alita was able to get a good education and live a fairly middle to upper class lifestyle. People think, or I guess the government is under the assumption that, oh, let's just, let's just put away our differences and be like, no, but we're all, in the end, Malaysian? Which, I mean, because, I mean, like, unity isn't, like, diversity and unity, that's, like, a nice sort of aphorism, right? Like, a catchphrase yeah. um, that people like to, what do you call it, um, shove around, and there are lots of people there who think, oh, no, but we shouldn't see... We shouldn't see uh, our differences. We shouldn't focus on them. We should be colorblind instead. But, you know, you and I both know how problematic colorblindness is because it's, yeah. it's, an, it's, a, it's an actuality. Like, 
yeah people look different and were treated different as a result you know yeah so um so in that sense i feel like malaysia hasn't really caught up with canada in terms of like actually like even using the word multiculturalism it's oh not, it's not really used in malaysia no and, it, and and like i mean see in canada it's like multiculturalism with like a capital m right yes and it's like legally sanctioned it's in your um what do you call it charter, charter of rights. rights exactly but it's not like that in malaysia we will say like oh we're a multicultural society we have like all these and blah blah blah, blah. but it's not like capital m multicultural you know what i mean yeah um so that's how i would compare the two and also i feel like our um because we're so stuck on like three races, these three, these are the like these three are the predominant races. Yeah, it still sort of alienates um, other immigrants that come into Malaysia because we have a huge um, Indonesian, Filipino, mm. Thai, yeah, uh, immigrant population that in the conversation of multiculturalism in Malaysia at the, at the moment they're marginalized in that conversation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, whereas I feel like in Canada, when we say multiculturalism, we don't... There's no, like, five races we think about immediately. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, if I, if I think of more, I'll let you know, but so far I think those are the main two differences. But I would say in Malaysia, I feel like the the... The melting pot in this, like, mingling of cultures really happens, or rather, I don't know, I think because Malaysia's a little older. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can go on about, like, Canada 150. I feel like all the different races in Malaysia, we've had to sort of coexist for a lot longer. So you can see that in our cuisine, like, um, we have a lot of hybrids you know like like yeah. um foods that are both indian and malay or chinese and malay right um or indian and chinese do you know what i mean yeah um similarly like we have cultures like nyonya is specifically chinese uh chinese malay culture so it's separate from chinese culture yeah uh but it's also separate from malay culture it's its own thing okay and um i feel like we're only starting to see these hybridities or even these like multiplicities whatever i'm just using big words now that i don't know um <laughs> but like we were always starting to see this mingling of cultures now in canada i feel like mm -hmm. for a while i mean you can even talk about um like how Vancouver is sort of racially segregated with Asians and whites. Yes, yeah. and even like and, and and even like specific Asians in specific parts of. Oh, that's Vancouver. interesting. Wouldn't you say like you're right? Yeah, like Burnaby, Surrey, Richmond. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those yeah. little ethnic enclaves. enclaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Not to say that those don't happen in Malaysia. They do, um, but I would say that that's. Although it's, it is a racial thing, it's also a class thing. Yeah. Um, it's in Malaysia. Most of the affluent neighborhoods 
are predominantly Chinese because, mm. and not all, but um, a lot of the Chinese population in Malaysia are more well-off than, say, the Malays and the Indians. Yeah. And it's interesting how class is stratified along with race. And it's, you know... Yeah. yeah. And then add in the gender stuff. Yeah. And sexuality. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Sexuality. Like, okay. If you want to compare Canada and Malaysia, Malaysia is way behind on sexuality. <laughs> like, we... Like, people... Ugh. I, you know... I... Just in the last 10 years of me being away from Malaysia, um, it's changed a whole lot. Like, I, when I was growing up, but I'll qualify this by saying that when I lived in Malaysia, I lived in a very predominantly Malay, um, lower to middle class uh, neighborhood mm-hmm. with, um, with, people, with families working in the government, so like civil service. Okay. And they're a little different than the rest than the rest of Malaysia, but like being gay was just like out of the question. Like right. you would never like even if you were, you would never admit it. You would never do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, like the idea of a guy liking a guy just wasn't in our thinking. If a person was like gay, we wouldn't even think of it like, oh my god, they want to have like sexual relations or like they're attracted to men. No, no, no. It's boys who are acting like girls. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That would be like, oh, that person's gay. Yeah. So I know in Singapore, um, being gay is a crime. Yes. Oh, in Malaysia too. In Malaysia okay, too. I was gonna ask. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes, being uh, being gay is a crime, especially. And I, I was gonna I was gonna tie into this with the whole three races. Oh, but before before I say that, in Malaysia, Malays are technically like just in terms of numbers the majority, and then there's the Chinese, and then there are Indians. Okay. Um, and if and Chinese, and I understand their plight, and I totally understand that they've been sort of. Um, sidetracked or just pushed aside in terms of politics. Yeah. But if there's any real racial minority in Malaysia, it's the Indians. Okay. They're the ones, like, even in school, they would be um, made fun of the most. They're the ones that have the sort of manual jobs or, like, low-income oh, jobs. Okay. Um so just and th- but then that's my understanding of race and class in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So what I'm about to say comes from that perspective and that observation. Um, even though Malays are technically a majority, I find as a Malay that I am also sort of beholden to my or rather um i'm kind of like being malay and being muslim is inseparable okay like um but if you're an indian or chinese you could be atheist you could be christian you could be buddhist you could be hindu yeah um there's a there's a freedom of religion but in if you're a malay like even culturally being a malay now means being muslim like the way we marry is more Muslim now. I mean, like, it's gotten a lot more um, Islamicized, I suppose, yeah. in recent years. But um, if you were Malay, 
there's no doubt in anyone's mind that you're a Muslim. Mm. And for me, that was very, um, I felt very confined and very sort of restricted. Yeah. Because of that. And um, I always sort of was always jealous of my non Malay friends okay. when I was there growing up because I was like, oh, you get to wear shorts out. That's so <laughs> nice. And you get to, like, when we get older later, you get to drink and, like, that's awesome. You can have tattoos and you no one's pressuring you to cover up and like no one's questioning your morals if based on like how religious you are you know yeah um and so for me like the that that was the big oppressive like sort of dark cloud in my life growing up in Malaysia that like I had to be um super modest and I had to act a certain way because my religion dictates so. Right. Even if I don't, like, agree with it. Like, I'm not allowed to wear nail polish, and I'm not mm. allowed, you know, all these things, which, of course, are really frivolous, and, um, but the moment someone tells you you're not allowed to do it, like, all the more reason why you want to, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially when you're young. Yeah. Um, so, for me, like, if we talk about race, class, in Malaysia specifically, I, I, I find it interesting how... Oh, and I was going to say about this with multiculturalism, too. People would rather talk about religious differences than, say, like, racial differences. Because oh, race is so... We've had a bad history with race, man. Like, <laughs> like after race riots in 1969, people just don't want to touch race. They're just scared of it. They're scared that, like, some kind of violent eruption is going to happen again? Yeah, and I think, like, everyone... Like, it, race is one of those things that, like, people sort of walk on eggshells around, you know, like, they okay. sort of beat around the bush, like, when I was there, because to me, I think it's important to, 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 to talk about race, because sometimes people just don't talk about it, and that perpetuates racist yes. injustices, but, um, I remember I was, like, this was when I was working there for an internship, I told my colleague, like, oh, and then this, like, Malay person, oh, you mean, like, not, you mean, you mean this, um, non-Malays, they get to them, like, no, no, you mean non-Muslims, like, because, because it's not, it doesn't have to do with the race, and I was like, but, but you don't understand for me, I can't, like, I can't separate those two, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, my race dictates my religion, again, with multiculturalism, we're still afraid to talk about race. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Contrasting. Sorry, I don't... No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm, like, going all over the place. My... <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's good, because you touched on a lot of things. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't even have to ask you. You're like, you're just going on. But um, we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. Okay, awesome. Okay. Just a little disclaimer about any of the statements I make about Canada. They're coming from an international student's perspective. I've only been here for four years, and my experience of living in Canada is very different um, to, say, like, a recent immigrant or even, like, a, like a first or second generation um, immigrant to Canada. Unlike people of color, I mean, unlike my friends of color who were born here and live here, I still go home to, like, my own little country and, like, Canada... Even if it doesn't belong to me, that's okay. I don't mind it not belonging to me. Yeah. But, of course, the stakes are different for me than they are for, like, you, Cecilia. Yeah. You know, you are Canadian, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Just mm -hmm. wanted to... 
put that out there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Alita. Okay. So we were talking about multiculturalism mm-hmm. uh, in comparison to Malaysia and Canada. Yes. You one of the one of the places where you spent a lot of your life in is Vienna as well, mm-hmm. like you mentioned. Yes. So how would you describe living in Vienna as a person of color? Because in my mind, I visited there, <laughs> like, a couple years ago for, yeah. like, five days, so uh-huh. I don't really know a bunch <laughs> about it. But what was it like living there? To me, it was a majority white, white. place. Yes. Um, so my experience of Vienna is also very... Um, I have a unique experience of Vienna because I was always in, like, the this international or, like, diplomatic bubble. Mm. Um, because your mom was part of the UN, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So in, in the UN, you see people from all over the world. Um, my mom's office, there were Brazilians and South Africans and Nigerians and and Japanese and, like, all these people. Also because UN has a quota system where if you come from, like, because they want to combat... Um, certain hegemonies, which I think is interesting and, like, really good. Um, They try to hire people from, like, the global south. And Mm. they try to hire women. Um, So it's always funny. Like, there's always a joke that if there was a big position out there, if you were an an American male, your chances of getting it are a lot lower (laughs) than if you were... um, Take example, my mom, who's Malaysian and she's a woman. Because that's the sort of culture and the kind of sort of value system in the UN, there were little places or spots where I felt like, oh, you know, I don't feel like this is all white man's land. Yeah. But um, in my international school, so the way it worked is that it was very exclusive only because there were limited spots and they prioritized, because it was tied to the UN, they prioritized kids from, uh, or rather kids of people who work in the UN. The only way for you to get into my school without being affiliated with the UN is if you were, like, really rich. I see. Um, which I find interesting because my understanding of other international schools in different, um, and even other international schools within Vienna, it's that they're all super expensive, but... My education was subsidized because I was a UN kid and that was a UN school. Mm-hmm. Um, which meant, like, even the janitor's child in the UN could go to that, to my school. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just an interesting note about the UN. The pay, like, there are different positions, of course, but the pay difference or, like, the disparities aren't all that great. Like, my mom could be a D2 and a clerk would be, like... G four, G five. What well, do those mean? Clerk. That like that's like your ranking. D, yeah, D means like director. So okay. your director is something like they have they have tiers and directors as well. So like D one or D two. Yeah. But just in case I'm wrong, correct me. But that's my understanding of the UN system, and like G is sort of like more general. Yeah. Um. But I remember just as a just to root this in like a real life example. My mom was a D2 because she was a director, and we were a single-income household mm-hmm. versus my friend's parents, who were both general, like, 
when I think her mom was an assistant and her father was like sort of like a general manager. Yeah. But they both collectively and also collectively earned way more, almost double what right. my what my mom earned. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of households, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um so just to say that like and I think this is what I this is one of the things I like about the UN is that you could be a G staff or a D staff. Mm-hmm. But the pay between the two of you isn't, like, monumental. Mm. Um, which um, is kind of nice, I find. Because where I come from, like, ooh, because uh, my mom was a government, um, or rather civil servant mm-hmm. in Malaysia. Like, if you were, I can't remember what they call it, like, JUSA A, JUSA B, JUSA C, or whatever. Like, if you were at this level, you'd get a driver, and you'd get the this huge Oh, bundle. wow. They really, like, yeah, hierarchize. Yeah, yeah. I, I messed up this word another time, but hierarchize? Hi- hierarchize? I, I can't make it. Make a hierarchy? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Like rank, and they, they, they try to make it... There's a huge difference between who's at the top and who's at the bottom. Whereas in the UN, I think they try to minimize that difference as well as they can. I mean, of course, it's also based on like your qualifications and the kind of work that you do. Yeah. But um, it's just some of them, like, it's just so grossly disparate. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, sorry, we totally back, we like totally did a <laughs> tangent on the UN. Um, but yeah, so... But that's a really important part of your story. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so had my mom not worked in the UN, I would never be able to afford going to that. Like, I, there was no way my family could afford going to that school. Yeah. Um, and my first year of university... Like, they'll, the UN kids are treated really well because they'll even pay for some of your university. Oh, wow! My mom retired after my first year, so that didn't oh, okay. me. Um... <laughs> But no, it was good for like one year, and I think it's wonderful, and that's why ultimately I'd like to still work at the UN, despite, you know, its little problems. Mm-hmm. But uh, my school in particular, there was very much this huge difference between like UN kids who yeah. were clearly there because their education was subsidized, and like Austrian rich kids right. um, who were there because their parents paid a lot of money <laughs> to get there. Um and only in retrospect do I notice that that was also very racialized. Like, all the Austrians who got in were all white. And all UN kids, or most UN kids, we were all kids of color. Um, because we didn't have uniforms, it was very apparent based on, like, the bags or the shoes or the oh, clothes. interesting. Or the laptops um, that everyone owned and... Um, and because, you know, that, like, cultural capital, um, the cultural capital that is enabled by, like, actual economic capital, like, mm-hmm. just straight-up capital, determined sort of which cliques you would be in, and, like, if you'd be in the popular group, or if you'd be in, like, the weird, nerdy Asian group. Yeah. Um, That's really interesting, because I felt like my school was also divided by class and therefore also divided by race. And it was really interesting um, because my all-girls Catholic school is in a very um, well-off area in Vancouver, a very wealthy place. Mm -hmm. And it was very apparent um, in the classrooms, like, 
Like who came from Monday? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm not too sure. Maybe this is just me thinking about it in retrospect, but like even how some of the girls talked, mm. you can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. Um, is is from a very uh, rich background. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that you also bring that up. Um, but I can definitely see parallels with your school and my school. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so cool. Yeah. Because I, I always assumed it was sort of... Because, obviously, when you're in international school, you interact with other international schools. Yeah. And, the, I mean, the UN is, in, is limited to certain um, cities, right? So there's one in Geneva, there's one in Nairobi, there's one in New York... And I'm sure I'm missing a few, but they're not everywhere. Yeah. Um, I always thought, okay, this is unique because this is specifically a UN international school. Because all the other international schools I knew that weren't affiliated with the UN, yeah, they all came from really wealthy backgrounds. Yeah. Um, If you had, I don't know, like free public school, which in Malaysia you do have, like public school is free, right? Yeah. Like, why would you go to an international school? I mean... Like, you really have to pay a lot of money to go to international school. So when I went back to Malaysia, I didn't go to an international school. I went to a public school. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I, what was my point with this? Oh, yeah. So I thought, <laughs> that's why I thought, like, my international school specifically was a really interesting, like, case study. Because it's kind of like a microcosm for, like, different classes and different races to interact. Yeah. Um... Which I, which I find other international schools may not have because they're so, like, just in terms of their socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. it's very specific. Mm-hmm. But I guess in, like, the U.S., I mean, because that's the only other um, example I know, there are really good public schools, but they're also in neighborhoods that are... Like, people pay tons of money to live in that neighborhood so that their child can go to that public school. And then you have, like, that unicorn or that, like, one person who, like, came from the wrong side of the tracks and are, like, given a scholarship or, like, some sort of reason why they're in there. But otherwise, those different classes don't interact very much in school. So it's mm-hmm. fascinating that you also experience that here in Canada. Yeah. What, what You said a Catholic school? Girls Catholic school? Yeah, all girls Catholic school. Huh, I know so many people from Canada who went to an all-girls Catholic school. Really? Yeah. I just don't understand going to a to a school that's... that. Like, are people who are non-Catholic allowed to go to that school? Yeah. Okay, all I right. think uh, the people who have... Uh, th- okay, this is from my knowledge mm-hmm. of what my parents have told me. Mm-hmm. Um, at least from my school... You have to send in your uh, baptismal certificate with your application. And then um, that gives you a bump up on whether or not you're accepted into the school. Um, Another thing is that... So it's like if you knew French and you wanted to apply for citizenship in Canada. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) It gives you more points. Yeah, it does give you more points. What also gives you points is whether or not you went to an elementary... Catholic elementary school. Okay. Oh, okay. So those two. And then if those are... um, There's a placement test. Not a placement test. Entrance exam. Okay. Okay, so let's review here. So, baptism um, certificate. Yeah, you need to submit your baptism certificate. You 
Catholic pre a Catholic elementary. Yeah, Catholic elementary school, and whether or not you get a sufficient enough um, mark on the entrance exam, if those are all filled, um, and there's still space left, then they'll then let like yeah, because okay. I know there were quite a few non-Catholics in my class. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. my friend was a non-Catholic in like a or a non-Christian in a Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. So wait, the entrance exam is that like is that just a regular sort of aptitude kind of test? Kind of. Does it have? Is it also like um, Catholic based? No, it's an aptitude. Okay. Cool. Test. Yeah, because my school is very academic focused, mm. and I think they wanted to keep their ratings up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Interesting. Right. Huh. All these. "Quote unquote good schools." Yeah. <laughs> like, do you see any like just Muslim schools or just like right schools? Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing because again, I don't know why I'm thinking about religion a lot, but um, there's like I mean, let's just say there's Christian privilege as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I always thought that it was interesting that there wasn't any Muslim school or Sikh school mm-hmm. because I feel like if one were to open in Canada. Everyone would go, or not everyone, but a lot of people would go berserk. Mm. It's like, oh, you're breeding terrorists. Mm-hmm. It's kind of creepy mm-hmm. when I think about it. Yeah. Because then Catholics and Christians have also done very terrorist-like things in the past. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. Is it fair for us to go berserk if something like that were to happen? But then again, I don't know because... It hasn't happened. Yeah. Why that's hasn't true. it? Because aren't we supposed to be a multicultural country? Mm-hmm. Canada? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe religion doesn't fall in like that's the other thing, right? Like when we think of multiculturalism, so there's culture, right? But culture and taking like intro to anthropology, culture, everyone can't decide how to define culture. Yeah. Or rather no one can dis- can can agree to one definition of culture yeah um so when we say multiculturalism what's what's included in that term and what's excluded that's yeah so what do you think um so yeah i mean i asked that question not having (laughs) it was a rhetorical (laughs) question that went back that backfired on you i mean like okay i see because i think religion goes is is very low in that term i mean i feel like now being Muslim is sort of in it, but when, again, like I was saying in the beginning, there's a very specific kind of Muslim that we're thinking about, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I would say, like, race or, like, your ethnicity yeah. is, is, is prioritized over, say, your religion or your, I don't know, whatever else goes into culture, your background or, like, your cultural traditions, you know? Yeah. Um... That's very interesting that you said that because I don't think I ever really thought about it. Mm. Like, I never really second-guessed it. Mm. And I guess when we do talk about multiculturalism, we it's primarily about race. Like, mm-hmm. you're right. Mm-hmm. Like, but you then have it's, this 
Because, like, even if we think about, like, the patchwork, right? Because, like, yeah. that's how we compare ourselves to the U.S. Ooh, ourselves. My, all my Malaysian friends love to say, like, every time we talk about Canada, you say we, we, we. But you can look <laughs> Canadian. And I'm like, I'm invested in the politics, okay? Take my break. But, uh... <laughs> But, um, so anyone who wants to come at me with that, I'm aware of it, but I, I say it because, you know, I'm, I'm, I live You've here You've been now. here and for four yeah, years, and, yeah. And I contribute whether I want to or not, right? Yeah. But, um, what I was going to say is, like, the, this whole, like, idea of patchwork, that's a very visual... And mosaic. And, and the, yeah, the, pa- the, pa- the mosaic, right? That's very sort of, like... Because I think the, 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 the reason why people say mosaic or, like, that patchwork, whatever, is because we want to think of, like, different colors to put together. But, like, what's the closest thing you can relate to? I mean, you can you sort of... What's the closest analogy that is to, like, real life? And I think that's race, right? Yeah. Like, we want all these people who look different to all get along. <laughs> <laughs> and to all belong to Canada. Yeah. Um... And Malaysia does this too, where like every time they want to show like this one Malaysia campaign, there's always the one indigenous person, the one Malay person, the one Indian, and the one Chinese. Always. Always a token. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then, like, and if you want to make some like ad or like um, campaign, and because I worked in the NGO sector, right? Yeah. If you want to make yourself look better, oh, we should get like more like diversity and like put an Indian person there, like, oh, let's interview her because she's she's indigenous or so, you know what I mean <laughs> it's like oh maybe we'll put a little bit more salt in here to get a little bit more taste exactly exactly <laughs> um yeah so when I think of multiculturalism that's usually like the first thing I think about yeah all the other dif- all the other ways that we are different like you know the way that um our work and our a bit like able-bodiedness and our religion all that stuff this sort of secondary or not even in the picture when I think about multiculturalism. Yeah. And I wonder, should we include... Yeah, like... Like, religious differences, sexual differences mm-hmm. into the term multiculturalism? Because in a way, they are part of culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, going back to... But then we come to this conundrum or, like, this big ontological or epistemological question of like then what is culture oh and then we go right back at it yeah that's the end of our conversation with alita but i still need to ask her one more thing if you're new to the podcast i like to finish off my conversations by asking my friends what piece of media they've recently read watched or listened to that they would recommend to others I started this podcast by thinking of ways to challenge mainstream media's representation of certain groups. And I wonder what my friends say is a good piece of media that says something positive about us minorities. So, what did Alita say? I mean, I'm at a phase in my life right now where I'm, I'm, spe- like, I'm making a conscious effort not to consume white stuff. <laughs> Ah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so then what have you been consuming that's not white? So, um, Master of None is amazing. Yes. I just finished season two. You did? I I'm did. on episode eight. Okay, okay. Yeah. I watched Master of None on Netflix, and my Netflix, for some reason, maybe I didn't put on the right setting or something, but there were no subtitles. Yeah. 
Um, and I was thinking to myself, this is, it was the same sort of feeling I had when I watched Jane the Virgin for the first time. Oh my gosh, that happened to me too. Like when the grandma started speaking in Spanish and there were no subtitles. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is very interesting. I like being challenged. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I like that I don't know what language this is. And I like that people are speaking languages that are not English. Yeah. I mean, Italian, of course, is not exactly like super, um, it's still like a romance language, right? Yeah. But I just, I kind of was like, hmm, interesting. And I, I, I could mostly gather from context and like what was happening on screen, what was happening. But um, I just, I liked that flip of the switch where like, oh, we can talk other languages, but Master of None is one. And then like we mentioned, Jane the Virgin. I love Jane the Virgin. Yeah. For me, Master of None specifically, because Dev is an Indian and he's, well, I'm not Indian, but... Um, a Muslim. A Muslim and a brown person. I'm pretty dark for Malay. But, I mean, I'm a quarter Indian anyway. My grandfather's Indian mm -hmm. on my dad's side. And now I just own it. Like, I feel... My my Instagram handle is, like, Oso Sanskari, and that's a Hindi word. Oh! Um, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And your mom calls me, like, her Desi girl. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love that you think I'm Desi. Like, I wish I want to be. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so... Master of None. Must, Master of None would be my... Like, I think that's a good... It's art. It's arty, and it still talks about social issues without sort of hammering it onto you. Mm -hmm. um, still, it's funny. And yeah, I think I like how they portray it in an everyday context. Yes, yes, yeah. for sure. And that wraps up this episode of Visible Minorities. Thanks so much to Alita for being on the podcast, because not only did she agree to talk to me. She also did a lot of background work. So, special thanks to Alita Ibrahim and Harry Bentley Bales for their research help. And thank you to Alita again for reviewing the script. Don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. If you did like listening to this conversation, a new episode comes out next week. And in that episode, I'll be talking with Amon Gosh, another friend who loves talking pop culture. So, until then, we'll talk soon.